1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, December 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Mississippi teenager is facing capital murder charges and the death of a child. Find out what's next for all three suspects involved. In
2: 1963. in the sp-
1: Then it's a day of awareness about AIDS. Find out the challenges of living with the disease and what's being done to reduce the number of cases. And a series of weekend activities will recall a civil rights effort to allow whites and blacks to worship together. Find out what happened when people of faith chose to kneel in for change. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The death penalty is a possibility for the kidnapping and murder of a six-year-old boy in Mississippi. Kingston Frazier was kidnapped while sleeping in the back seat of his mother's car when it was stolen from a grocery store parking lot. 19-year-old Byron McBride faces capital murder charges and possessing stolen property in the case. Another teen, Allen Washington, is also charged in the May 18th shooting crime. Washington was indicted for accessory after the fact to murder, kidnapping, and motor vehicle theft. Another suspect, Dwan Wakefield, could also be charged later. Michael Guest is district attorney for Madison and Rankin Counties. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood more on the grand jury. Proceedings.
3: The Madison County Grand Jury met yesterday. Uh, they returned two indictments. Uh, the first indictment was against Byron McBride. Uh, he was charged with two counts. The first count, uh, the capital murder uh, of Kingston Frazier. Uh, the indictment uh, alleges that uh, uh, Byron McBride killed Kingston Fraser during the commission of the offense of kidnapping. Uh, the second count to the indictment uh, alleges uh, that Byron McBride did have in his possession a stolen 2000 Toyota Camry. Uh, as the, the action of the grand jury, as it relates to D. Allen Washington, in that case, the grand jury returned a three-count indictment. Uh, count one was accessory after the fact to murder. Uh, count two was accessory after the fact to kidnapping. Uh, and count three was accessory after the fact to motor vehicle theft. Uh, the grand jury also heard testimony and returned findings against Dewan Wakefield. Uh, the grand jury, after uh, hearing uh, evidence from witnesses called uh, to testify before the grand jury, uh, found that there was probable cause to return an indictment against Mr. Wakefield for the crimes of accessory after the fact to murder, accessory after the fact to kidnapping, and accessory after the fact to automobile theft. Uh, The grand jury found that at the time Mr. Wakefield committed these crimes, that he had not yet reached his 18th birthday, that he was 17 years and nine months, uh, because he had not turned 18, uh, because this was not a crime that carries a life sentence. Uh, And because his actions did not involve a firearm, the grand jury found that the original jurisdiction rested with the Youth Court of Madison County. And so the grand jury made the following findings. Uh, The findings were the grand jury finds that exclusive original jurisdiction for the above-listed offenses rests with the Youth Court of Madison County. The grand jury hereby respectfully requests that the Youth Court of Madison County take all available actions to certify the above-named individual as an adult and thereby transfer his case to the Circuit Court of Madison County. The grand jury believes it to be in the best interest of justice that said defendant be charged and tried as an adult for his involvement in the death of Kingston Frazier. So the grand jury made that finding uh, that requires the case first to be referred back to youth court or to youth court but is making the request of youth court as well as our office and the family uh, that the youth court would certify Mr. Wakefield up as an adult uh, so that he can be held accountable for these crimes in the circuit court of Madison County and will be hopefully tried uh, as an adult.
1: Were there any relationship between the main suspect Byron McBride and Kingston's family?
3: Uh, there's no information that, that we have that uh, any of the individuals involved in this case uh, had any relationship with any of members of Kingston Frazier's family, so no ma'am there there was nothing that came out in the investigation to indicate that.
1: What do you know about uh, how or why the shooting transpired?
3: uh don't feel comfortable at this time really talking about the facts of the case um of course there are a lot of facts that came out early on after there was testimony at the preliminary hearing uh but in an effort to to kind of tamp down on, on pre-trial publicity um would n- not feel comfortable at this time going into the individual facts of, about what any of the three individuals may have done or may have said
1: did you have much cooperation from the other suspects outside of mcbride
3: um, there were statements which were were obtained from McBride and Wakefield. I think those statements were testified to at the preliminary hearing. Uh, so uh, they were agreeable to speaking with law enforcement at the time of arrest. Thank you.
1: The attorneys for McBride and Washington were unavailable for comment. The attorney for Wakefield says because the teen's case has been referred to youth court, he could not comment. Coming up, it's a day of awareness about AIDS. Find out the challenges of living with the disease and what's being done to reduce the number of cases. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians and people around the world are recognizing World AIDS Day today. Jackson has the fourth highest rate of HIV infection in the nation, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Though transmission is highest among black men who have sex with men, the rates of children with the disease are alarming. Chip Lyons is president of the Elizabeth Goyser Pediatric AIDS Foundation. He tells us progress has been made, but more work is needed to end in children.
4: We are a situation in 2017 where there are still 400 children a day um, who are newly infected. That number should be down close to zero because we have the medicines and ability to uh, prevent those new infections. Most of them come during the course of a pregnancy or during the breastfeeding period. And um, over the longer stretch, we've reduced new pediatric infections in the United States by 95 percent There are fewer than 200 a year in the United States um, in our huge country and we've also reduced pediatric infections by 70 percent worldwide so one could say and unfortunately some people do say with that kind of progress you have it in hand you don't need my help the fact of the matter is the rest of the way to end AIDS in children is going to be in some respects as challenging as The obstacles we've faced so far. So the the message on World AIDS Day is we have to remember the kids. We can get to the point of ending AIDS in children, uh, but we need to continue the investment and the leadership and uh, continued innovation so we uh, do a better job year on year.
1: Where are the most cases of AIDS in our world?
4: Right now, the highest burden countries, um, broadly a whole country, and so its whole age ranges um, are in sub-Saharan Africa, and associated with that, the vast majority, uh, 90% uh, or so of new pediatric infections are likewise in sub-Saharan Africa, and the Elizabeth Glaser Pediatric AIDS Foundation, where I work, uh, is focused on uh, 19 countries because that's where we need to continue um, uh, in this drive to end uh, AIDS in children.
1: Are children always infected by their mothers or are there other ways that children who have AIDS may have gotten AIDS?
4: It is 95 plus percent um, the result of uh, the pregnancy or or breastfeeding period. There could be a few small, very unusual, very rare cases of blood or um, in, in some other way. But when you're thinking about or your listeners are thinking about a child being infected, you can associate that with a pregnancy by an HIV-positive woman who has not in all likelihood gotten themselves on treatment. So that's the critical step. That's how you drop the chance of of, uh, transmission to a child down to just 1% or 2%, um, which is where we should be everywhere.
1: It used to be in this country decades ago, if one contracted AIDS, it was a death sentence. They were going to die. Is that still the case in these countries that you've mentioned?
4: It would be the case particularly for children. The mortality um, uh, rates are sky high for two and and five-year-olds if they have the virus and they're not diagnosed and put on uh, treatment. Uh, if, If someone has HIV, they must be on treatment. The good news of years and years of work and research and commitment is the medicines only get better. The prices have dropped. That's why it's so important for everyone who has any question whatsoever to be tested and know their status because there are drugs that are affordable, that are effective, that allows someone to live a full and productive life.
1: Chip Lyons is the CEO and president of Elizabeth Glaser Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Chip, thank you so much for some really good information.
4: Not at all, Karen. Thanks for your time.
1: Jason McCarty is state coordinator for HIV Support Group Mississippi Positive Network. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser the disease is not limited by race, age, or gender.
0: So Mississippi Positive Network is an organization created for people living with HIV in the state of Mississippi. It's not only a network that brings together advocates that want to advocate for people living with HIV, but it's for people that have HIV that just want to simply get together, network, find common ground, um, break bread, and just an overall organization just for everyone living with HIV in the state.
4: Are there a lot of people in this
0: group? In our organization, there's um, so far there's about 100 people that have come to the table to say um, they're HIV positive and they're pr- not proud of it, but they have accepted it. You know, and, and the forms of accepting of having HIV is all over the place. There's people that they tell themselves. That's only their primary care physician or, and their self. There's people that tell their family. There's pe- the people that tell their friends. And then there's people that tell the world. Um, so right now we have 100 people at the table Um, that have come to say that they have HIV in Mississippi and they want to help change the epidemic.
4: Is this for men and women?
0: Yeah, it's for men, it's for women, it's for trans. HIV sees no gender, um, so the Mississippi Positive Network doesn't see gender as either. So it's for everyone.
4: You talked a little bit about why you needed this support group. Uh, Explain that.
0: You know, living in Mississippi, first of all, being, um, if you represent yourself as being gay in Mississippi is already a big enough issue, you know, but to bring in an extra situation could be rough. You know, when speaking with people that have HIV in this state, you know, it's an extra element that they have to label themselves. You know, let's imagine um, someone that is black, disenfranchised, has HIV, living in Mississippi where we know the minority population um is really not A, represented, or be really respected, there's a lot of weight that gets put on people's shoulders. So this network is about really bringing people together that when we go to an event, we don't see gender, we don't see sex, we don't see the race, we don't see if you're gay or straight, because everyone is welcome. We have people that are in the network that are not gay, because again, HIV doesn't see anything, there is no eyes to this disease. This disease has, it loves everyone. You know, So everyone has been to the table and everyone is welcome to the table.
4: So it's a mixed race group because I think, as you mentioned, when people think about HIV in Mississippi, they think of black males.
0: Yeah, I think right now it's because all eyes on the epidemic are for MSM for black males, you know, because that's currently what the epidemic for Jackson is. So when we're speaking to legislators or when we're speaking to people of power... They automatically assume that everyone that has HIV is black and they're gay. That's simply not true, you know? And so there's a lot of um, misguidance and the people of power, quote-unquote, world, that to think that this is a black issue is not only ignorant, but the facts don't state it. Everyone, again, can get this disease. And so I think when we get to the understanding at the table that anyone can get it, prevention is care, And access to care is how we're going to stop this epidemic. Well, thank you so
1: much for speaking
0: with us. We appreciate it, Jason McCarty. Thank you so much.
1: The Centers for Disease Control reports in 2015, 509 adolescents and adults died in Mississippi from HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Coming up, a series of weekend activities will recall a civil rights effort to allow whites and blacks to worship together. Find out what happened when people of faith chose to kneel in for change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Members from Mississippi's Communities of Faith are coming together this weekend to recognize workshops, or worship rather, across race lines. From Saturday through Monday, the Jackson Interfaith Civil Rights Committee is hosting a series of free events to commemorate the church visit campaign of 1963 and 1964. The Jackson Kneel-In Movement was an attempt by an interracial group of students parishioners, and civil rights activists to integrate Protestant and Catholic churches in downtown Jackson. Organizers used direct action protest to urge the churchgoers and ministers at segregated churches to open their sanctuaries to African-American worshipers. Reverend Ed King is a retired faculty at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He was also chaplain at Tougaloo College in the 1960s. He tells us about the original event.
2: In 1963, in the spring, black people and a few white allies were planning civil rights campaigns. Dr. King was planning his campaign in Birmingham, working closely with the Snooze Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and his own organization, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And before the big marches began in Birmingham, Dr. King wanted to confront the white Christians and the white religious leaders of the city, including the Jewish community, and see if some kind of progress could be made without having to have demonstrations, marches. No one knew at that moment that that might mean dogs and high school students in prison. Uh, That campaign was coming here in Jackson. I was chaplain of Tougaloo College but working closely with an old friend, Medgar Evers, uh, who was leading the Jackson Movement, which was also looking at what Dr. King was doing in Birmingham. And Dr. King asked us and others to have visits to religious centers, in this case white churches, on Easter Sunday, and hopefully to get dialogue going. And if people could take one step together, maybe it'd be easier to sit at a lunch counter or even to go to school together. What was
1: the reception from white churches in Jackson?
2: The white churches, particularly the Methodist churches, were in turmoil because a number of younger clergy had signed a statement supporting desegregation and orderly change. This is after the Ole Miss riots a few months earlier. Uh, many of those ministers had been driven out of the state between January and Easter. For Medgar, I went to Dr. Seela, the pastor of Galloway United Methodist Church, and Dr. Seela said, This is a good idea, and uh, I will have Galloway Church open, but please do not come in Easter this year. Let's wait until the middle of June." And Medgar was very willing to compromise, so on. We, I think somebody let Dr. King know that in Jackson, a better date for us would be midsummer. This again, this is April. Birmingham explodes a week later. But this was typical of civil rights leaders trying to find some way, willing to change, willing to moderate. And so we did not have things then. Uh, Birmingham explodes, Jackson explodes, with our nonviolent demonstrations being met by violence. By the early part of June, over 500 people had been arrested, many of them tortured in prisons here in Jackson. There had been a massive effort behind the scenes at interracial religious cooperation the Roman Catholic bishop, the bishop of the Episcopal Church, the Methodist bishop of the white Methodist Church, the rabbi, our clergy from Presbyterian, other churches actually had secret meetings where we did have people talking together. But they were kept secret for fear. And by the time the demonstration started, We could not get a strong statement from this united clergy supporting Medgar Evers' demand for a biracial committee to deal with any of a dozen problems he listed. And Medgar didn't care where it started. The mayor also understood that if you can try on shoes together, why not let the children go to school together? So the mayor said there are no racial problems in Jackson. Our colored people are happy. And Medgar was trying to show that people did want change.
1: Did the Newlands actually happen in June? When did Uh, it finally happen then?
2: In the middle of June, Medgar organized and took people to about half a dozen churches. St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church admitted people. Uh, First Baptist, White Church, Southern Baptist turned people away, as did several other churches. And Medgar had himself driven the car and thought he would be the first person arrested because he was named as others. I was down the list of the names. But on the spur of the moment, he said, let's go over to Galloway Church a block away. They were turned away, and a note was handed to the pastor who announced from the pulpit that he could not lead the evening worship service because there could be no worship service in a segregated church, in a church that turned people away, and announced that he was resigning, as did the associate pastor. Medgar Evers is assassinated three days later, and it was the last campaign he led. So we decided we will have to continue it became something to honor Medgar, and I became the leader of that campaign. On the Sunday after Medgar's death, St. Andrew's Episcopal Church opened its doors. So we saw that the Catholic churches, because of the bishop, one Episcopal church were open. And what we had was biracial conversation for three months on the steps of white churches people would ask, would you let Jesus in? And one man said, this is my church, keep Jesus out of this. And we would have to laugh at it. We would also have con- members of the congregation come over and say, I wish the ushers would let you in. By September, several churches were opening, and the Citizens Council and the Sovereignty Commission brought pressure to keep the churches closed. By early October, the police move in and arrest people at Capitol Street Methodist Church. We had not expected that. Mississippi went further than (laughs) Birmingham did with Dr. King at the churches. Then we had to decide, would we call it off completely or would we continue and Jackson white people were very upset. And we would point out, children were killed in Birmingham. Why can't we pray together? Don't we have the same God? The communication was happening. Once the arrest started, we did not go back to churches where we could have been arrested for trespassing. No church ever called the police for an arrest, but for almost 50 people were arrested over the next eight months. The police intervened on their own. After a few weeks, the police brought dogs on chains in front of the churches, and the police would park with their police van to put people in if arrested. And we didn't ask for that, but it made people think even more. One woman called me and said, I know what you're doing. I think it's good. But my six-year-old asked me, Mama, why are those dogs in front of our church? What are the police doing? And I couldn't explain it. And she said, you tell those students. They made me think. And they're probably right. We ought to begin.
1: Reverend Ed King is retired faculty at the School of Health-Related Professions at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and former chaplain at Tougaloo College. Reverend King, thank you so much for coming in. Okay. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.